Father in heaven, we ask that you would humble us this morning to hear your word, to receive your word, or to welcome your word this morning, that we would be changed. Lord, we long for more of you. We long to know you more. And so we ask you to draw near to us in this time. Lord, I pray you'd help me as a messenger of your word to faithfully proclaim your word. I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word and pray that you would use our time this morning to change us all, to remind us of your love for us in Christ, or to strengthen us this morning in our faith, to help us grow spiritually, that we would be those who grow in worship and in service and obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When was the last time you asked yourself if following Jesus is worth it? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and we are glad that you've come. You're welcome to be here every Sunday morning. Coming to church is a great place for you to hear more about who God is and what He's done by listening to His Word. So, so maybe if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that may be your thought as you hear Christians talk to you about Christ and about the message of Christ, the gospel. You may wonder, is it really worth it to turn away from my life and follow Jesus? But what about for Christians? But when's the last time you had this thought? You know, whether you realize it or not, this is a question that Christians often wrestle with. And what I mean by that is is maybe not you asking, is it worth it to be a Christian, period? Now, sometimes that may be a struggle for Christians. But I think what is more common often is asking yourself in a moment, is obedience to God worth it? Getting out of bed on a cold and rainy Sunday morning, is it worth it to obey God and come to church if you're able-bodied and able to come? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, evangelizing a family member, a friend, or a coworker, or a classmate who you're not sure will respond well to the gospel, is it worth it in the moment? In that moment of temptation, when there is a choice to obey God or travel down the path of temptation to sin, is it worth it to obey God? Maybe that's a question going through your mind. Well, Helen Rosevere, the great English Christian missionary to the Congo, she recounted asking that question when she was sitting in a prison cell for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in a foreign country, being tortured, being persecuted, thinking in that prison cell that she could have been back home. She could be in England, a practicing doctor with a a nice life and a comfortable career, but instead follow the Lord's call to be a medical missionary in a foreign country there in the Congo and happened to be there when civil war broke out and as a foreigner she was taken and thrown into prison for doing nothing wrong, just simply being a Christian missionary in that country. She said that sitting in that prison cell, she was tempted to ask the question, was this worth it? And she said in those dark moments that the Spirit of God guided her and convicted her that she was asking the wrong question. The question isn't, is this worth it? But is He worthy? And when you ask the question, is He worthy? She said the answer is, of course you are, Lord. He is worthy. The answer to the question, is it worth it? 
The answer is, He is worthy. As Christians, we must walk in this reality, in this truth that God is worthy of all of our lives. He's worthy of all glory that we can possibly bring Him. As those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we recognize that our life is not our own. We've been bought and paid for with a price. The price of the blood of Jesus Christ, purchased by God Himself, belonging to Him as His children. We submit to Him. And together, we are those growing and saying, He is worthy. He's worthy of all glory and honor and praise in our lives. Well, this week in our study in 1 Thessalonians, we read of how this young Thessalonian church was enduring persecution for their faith in Jesus. And by God's grace, they were persevering. They were walking in a manner worthy of God. And last week we saw in the beginning of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul pointing to ministry that pleases God. And these verses here in the middle of chapter 2, they speak to how it is that you gain that motivation. How you gain that motivation to please God. How you grow in that motivation to please God. It starts, the Apostle Paul says, with the Word of God. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 13 through 16 this morning. If you want to go ahead and open up your copy of the Bible of God's Word, and if you want to use that Bible in front of you, you can take that Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. That's on page 986 in the Pew Bible, page 986. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 through 16 this morning. And if you've come and you don't own a Bible, use that Bible in front of you this morning. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Connect with someone here or one of our pastors at the door afterwards. We'd love to connect you with someone who could help you read the Bible and understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13 through 16. We're going to read through this passage, or I'll read for us as we begin our time here this morning. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Well, the main idea that I want us to see in this passage, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the main idea. God's Word works in us to produce costly obedience. God's Word works in us to produce costly obedience. On the last chapter, the Apostle Paul described the manner in which he first came to the Thessalonians to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And here in these verses, he recounts their response to the gospel. As we look at how they responded to God's Word and kept responding, Let's consider how it is as a church that we should 
keep responding to God's Word. If you've been baptized upon profession of faith into the membership of this local church, then you've professed, you have responded to the Word of God, to the Gospel, through repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And and now, by, by God's grace, we've been free to live a life for Him, which means we keep responding to the Word of God. Let's consider that this morning as we look at the response of the Thessalonians. The first response we see from them in verse 13 that we can also take is welcome the Word. The first response to the Word, verse 13, welcome the Word. Well, how often do you thank God? We've seen in this short letter to the Thessalonian church that the Apostle Paul had a practice of regularly thanking God in prayer. And here in verse 13, this is the second time in the letter that the, Paul, that the Apostle Paul states that he thanks God constantly, unceasingly in prayer. And we read a second Thanksgiving report here in verse 13. Now, the first report was back in chapter 1 in verses 5 through 10, and there Paul thanked God for the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. Here in the second report in verses 13 through 16, he thanks God for how they received the Word of God when he first preached the gospel to them. Now, when Paul thanks God, notice where the credit goes for their spiritual growth. The glory goes to God. He doesn't thank the Thessalonians for how they received the Word of God. Rather, he thanks God for how they received the Word of God. You know, for those who believe the gospel and put their faith in Jesus, it's a good practice to regularly thank God for your salvation. There may be a lot of challenges in your life right now. Sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night, and those challenges, they hit our mind. We start thinking about those things. We may have a hard time getting back to sleep. Or maybe the first thing you think about in the morning, you're brushing your teeth, are the challenges that face you that day. That's a good moment to pause and to pray and to thank God for your salvation. Things may be tough in your life, but they could be a lot worse. You could still be dead in your sins. You could still be separated from Christ. But by God's grace, He bought you with the price, with the blood of Christ. He he wooed you and won you and pursued you, brought you to Himself. And we can regularly thank God for our salvation. God's the one who saved us. He's the one who opened up our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. He softened our heart to receive and believe the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, you should regularly thank God for the testimonies of grace that you see around you in this local church. I've heard so many of you say that baptism Sundays are some of your favorite Sundays here at this church when you get to hear testimonies of God's saving grace in the lives of people. And it reminds you of of your testimony. It reminds you of, of your baptism and God's grace to you. You see, Thanksgiving is a fitting, regular ministry for the local church. The local church is where God's grace is on display, and we can look around and thank God, as the Apostle Paul was doing, for testimonies of God's grace. And when you thank God, you're reminding yourself of His blessings in your life. You see, Thanksgiving is the opposite of taking credit for something. When we thank God for our salvation, we're just reminded of His grace and His love and His kindness to us. And in this way, Thanksgiving is a practice of humility. Oakhurst Baptist Church, let's give ourselves to thanking God more this week, of pausing and praying and thanking Him for our salvation and the salvation of other people here in this local church. 
Well, here in verse 13, Paul is specifically thanking God for how the Thessalonians received the Word of God when he first preached the Word to them. Now, we read about this moment back in Acts chapter 17, verse 2, when Paul made his very first visit to the city of Thessalonica. It says in Acts 17, 2, that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's what evangelism is. It's reasoning with people from the Scriptures, sharing God's Word and presenting it to them in a way that helps them understand what God has said and what He's done in Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul taught them the Word of God. Now, the New Testament was not completed then. I mean, he was writing it right there in that moment as he was writing this letter, First Thessalonians. It would become part of Holy Scripture. So the Word of God he's referring to here, it's talking about the teaching of the apostles. And the teaching of the apostles, those men handpicked by Jesus Himself, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, their teaching involved using the Old Testament Scriptures and pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment. The one that they've hoped for is found in Jesus. In Him, there is salvation. Now, Paul thanks God that when the Thessalonians received his preaching about Christ, they accepted it. Now, that word accepted that we see there, it means to welcome. To accept the word means to welcome the word of God. Think about that moment you first welcomed the word of Christ. It might have been that you had heard the word for a long time, and that you knew it, and you could rehearse it, even repeat back to someone the message of the gospel. But indeed, there was a moment, you might not know when it was, but there was a moment that you first believed. There was a moment that the Holy Spirit of God won you over, that you were converted. That was the moment that you welcomed initially the Word of God. Paul says that the Thessalonians, they welcomed the Word, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. Well, what's the Word of men? Well, last week we thought about back in the first century in Roman society, there were many traveling teachers, many philosophers that would go from town to town preaching messages that were pleasing to people to gain a following, to gain fame and money. They were teaching messages made up by men. Now, while the gospel of Jesus Christ is certainly preached by people, That's the way God has ordained it. He didn't ordain it for angels to come and preach the gospel. He could have. He ordained it for us to come and preach the gospel to one another, to those around us. So it's it's preached by human beings, but it does not have human origins. The gospel comes from God, and, and the Apostle Paul uses in this book so often gospel of God, gospel from God, meaning that the gospel is God's message. He is the author of the gospel. This message, this news we sing about this morning. I mean, and I've mentioned this a number of times. Think about the weird things we sing about to the world around us. We're we're, we're singing in a joyful manner about the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Most people think if you'd want to be happy on a gloomy, rainy Sunday morning, you wouldn't be singing about blood and death and persecution. But for Christians, we sing about that joyfully every Sunday morning. We're not the only ones. Christians all over the city all over the globe, singing about this same message this morning of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, and He came from heaven to die, to lay His life down, to suffer willingly as a sacrifice for sin, taking upon Himself shame that He did not deserve, the only innocent one to ever live, who perfectly honored God in all that He did and said, perfect in His obedience, 
perfect in his love for God and for his neighbor, willingly laid his life down to be treated as a public criminal, publicly humiliated, and killed on a cross. And we find joy in that as Christians because we know that was the only way that we are saved. By the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Him dying in our place as a substitute. Laying down His life that we might be forgiven of our sin. The one who got up from the dead on the third day has extended new life to us through repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. We proclaim it. But make no mistake, it's not a message made up by people. It's not a message made up by the Apostle Paul. He heard it himself from the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. You can read about that back in Acts chapter 9. That's the gospel message. It's good news. And the Thessalonians, they heard that message and they accepted that message, not as being just another message made up by people that was coming to their town, but rather as a message that came from God. They repented of their sins. They trusted in Jesus Christ, and they were saved. Well, if you're here this morning, I I wonder, have you personally welcomed the Word of God? If you're here this morning, and you've not put your faith in Jesus, maybe you're familiar with Jesus, maybe you're familiar with church, but it's different about being familiar with Jesus than putting your faith in Jesus. You see, welcoming the Word means you put your faith in in Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus for salvation, forgiveness of sins? You see, you become a Christian, you initially welcome the Word by repenting, meaning turning away from your sin, and believing, meaning trusting in Jesus Christ alone to be forgiven of your sins against a holy God. Now, some of you here today may be familiar with the gospel, but have you truly put your faith in Jesus? While we must humbly listen to the Word of God, we need to be careful that's not where we stop. We need to welcome the Word of God. What we see here, it's possible to hear the Word and not accept it. It's possible even to hear the Word and maybe just think, okay, that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, if, that, if Jesus helps you live a better life, then I am all for you. Well, that's not welcoming or accepting the Word. If you're here this morning, we're so thankful for the many children in this church. And you have the blessing, if your parents are members here or one of your parents is, you have the blessing of having grown up in a home where you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from your parents and you get to hear it here in church. But hearing is not enough. We can't stop at hearing. What it means to welcome the Word of God is to say, I want to trust in Jesus. I believe this. And children, talk to your parents more about that, what it would look like to welcome the Word of God into your life if you haven't already done so. And for others that are here today, maybe you think, I've heard this before. Have I really put my faith in Jesus? Talk to another member who brought you this morning, a person here who's a member who brought you. Talk to any of our pastors on the way out. We would love to talk with you more about what it would look like for you to welcome the Word of God in Jesus Christ today. Well, notice the order here in verse 13. Paul preached the Word, they heard the Word, they accepted the Word, meaning welcomed it, and the Word of God was at work in them. It's a very similar order to what the Apostle Paul goes through in Romans 10, 
of hearing the Word, receiving the Word, and being changed by the Word of God in Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 13, Paul says, the Word of God is at work in you believers. So Paul, when he wrote this letter, was no longer at work in Thessalonica there physically, but the Word of God was. That, that word work, it means active. Actually, in the Greek, energia, energy, active. It's at work in you. The power of, God is li- power of God's Word is living and active if indeed you've received His Word in your life. The power of God and His Word was seen in the work of the Word in their lives. Starting all the way back with their conversion, God's activity in their lives through His Word continued to bring about spiritual fruit. So the the work of God's Word, it strengthens believers spiritually. The Word is able to make us wise. Not not human wisdom, but wisdom that comes from God. If you want to grow in wisdom, give yourself to knowing the Bible and understanding the Bible and applying the Bible to your life. The Word of God is powerfully at work in the lives of Christians to convict us of sin, to help us know what it is that pleases God, to grow in our ambition to please Him, and to help us grow in being sensitive to what displeases God and to grow in our hatred for what God hates, sin. The Word of God is competent and able to teach us about God, about who He is. God's Word is able to purify our motivations and our desires. God's Word works with His Holy Spirit to protect us spiritually, to guard our hearts to guard our minds in Christ Jesus. God's Word brings the believer comfort and confidence. His Word, it changes us. changes us from the inside out. And when you believe that, and when you get that, and when you're reminded of that, well, then it should excite us to give ourselves more and more to welcoming the Word of God in our lives. You see, there's a pattern here in verse 13. as a pattern for Christian growth, a pattern for maturing in your faith, Hear the Word, accept the Word, and the Word is at work in you. It's how you first became a Christian. It's how you grow as a Christian. Keep hearing the Word. Keep welcoming the Word. Look to God's Word and the power of His Word at work in you. So what that means is if you want to grow in knowing God, that comes through knowing Him in Scripture. Brother and sister in the Lord, keep welcoming the Word. If you want to see God work in your life, well, give yourself to regularly hearing the preaching and teaching of God's holy Word. Yes, it is important to be in the Word throughout our week. The Sunday morning should not be the only time that we open up our Bibles. Uh, hopefully this is a time where we're being fed and we're growing and our appetite's growing to open up God's Word more and more more. But I fear that a far more common trap in kind of modern Christian society is to view the time in the Word primarily as just like me and God time. That's, it's important to have quiet times, devotions, whatever it is you call it, that's important. But I fear far too often in an individualistic society that, that impacts Christians to think primarily of your walk with the Lord as being your time alone with God in the Word. Now keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, he didn't write this letter just to an individual Christian. He wrote it to a church an assembly of believers. There was a corporate reception of God's Word initially, and there was this ongoing corporate reception of the Word that would strengthen them. 
What that means is that you're here this morning, you made a choice to be here, and together, corporately, we are receiving the Word of God. It's vitally important to our spiritual health that we keep coming to hear God's Word. We keep assembling on Sunday morning, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, to hear God's Word, to welcome it anew, and to be strengthened by the Word of God. Christian, keep putting yourself in a place to sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Fathers, spiritual leadership in the home, it's not easy, but it's not complex. Bring your family to church. Position them to hear the Word of God. I'm thankful for for dads right now in the back holding those little babies so that mom can sit and have some time to hear God's Word. May the Lord bless you moms as you sit and listen and bless you dads as you hold those little ones and try to listen there in the back. Give ourselves, whatever stage of life you're in, give yourself more and more to hearing God's Word, and it starts with coming on Sunday mornings. Now think about how you make efforts to welcome others. I had a house guest this week. We had a house guest in our house. Uh, We planned for that. We prepared for that. Uh, The room was cleaned. Uh, The sheets were changed there on that bed. Things were tidied up. Uh, We bought food even that would fit the preference of our guest that was going to stay with us. We were making plans to welcome someone into our home, into our life, into our schedule. It's the same way with welcoming the Word. We make plans. We prepare to hear God's Word. As you hear the preaching of God's Word this morning, receive it joyfully. Take notes. I love how many of you take notes here. That's why we actually print out these bulletins. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, what is in this bulletin that we really need that we couldn't put on the screen? Well, well, one utility of it, we just wanted to have a culture where people are actively listening by taking notes. You're certainly welcome to do that in in your own journal or notebook, whatever you have, but we want to make sure everyone has something this morning where they can sit and listen to the Word and try to retain what it is we are hearing together. Pray and ask God to work in you. We do that on Sunday mornings, but, but pray before you come on Sunday morning. Ask the Lord to work in you and to work in the lives of other members of this church. We put the passage that we plan to preach the next Sunday on the back of the bulletin every week. Well, we'll take some time to read through that passage to prepare and to read and to pray and to ask God to work in you. And after the sermon, take those notes. Talk with another member of this church. Join a community group where at least twice a month you can regularly get together with other members of this church to process the sermon, to hear what someone else heard, what was encouraging to them, what was helpful for them. Give yourself more and more to welcoming the Word in your life, and I think what you'll see, God's Word at work in you to help you mature and grow spiritually. Let's consider a second response to the Word. We see this in verses 14 through 16, costly obedience. A second response to the word, costly obedience. Well, how do you know that you've received and accepted the word of God? A necessary piece of evidence is obedience, that you obey the word of God. In the book of James, James puts it like this in James 1.22, that you do the Word. That you hear the Word and by God's grace become doers of the Word. Again, while we must give ourselves to hearing the Word of God, we can't stop at hearing. By God's grace, we must 
persevere and ask for his help to obey his word, to do his word. One piece of evidence that the Thessalonians had received the word was seen in their obedience. And it was costly obedience. They were strengthened by God's grace to persevere through persecution for their faith. Costly obedience, walking the path of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. Here in verse 14, Paul thanks God for their obedience, pointing out that they became imitators of those who walked in faith. So so again, follow the pattern here. The word was preached, received, and accepted. And now in verse 14, the word was at work in them, producing costly obedience. That, That word for, at the beginning of verse 14, it points to proof. Proof of God's word at work in them. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Now, in chapter 1, Paul pointed out that this church had become imitators of him and the Lord Jesus in their affliction and in their suffering. Here, he highlights specifically, they also imitated the example of churches there in the region of Judea. That's the region where Israel is located, the, the birthplace of the Christian faith, where Jesus was born and where he died and where he rose from the dead. Uh, the region of Judea is where the very first churches were formed. And these churches in Judea received the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though that meant signing up for suffering and persecution for your faith. The Thessalonians, they imitated these churches in Judea, following their example. So they accepted the word of God And they followed Jesus even though it meant sure suffering and persecution. Well, I wonder, when did you first hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? For many of us, it might have been in a setting similar to this, like a nice church building. It's pretty peaceful in here right now. You've got some time to hear and to think. You've even got some time afterwards if you want to stick around and talk to others about what you just heard. This is a wonderful setting that I'm so thankful we have the opportunity to hear the Word of God like this. But that wasn't what it was like for the Thessalonians. It wasn't like just a peaceful place where you could sip on coffee and think about this and ponder more what it meant to follow Jesus. They received the Word and followed Jesus in a hostile setting. Again, back in Acts chapter 17, a mob formed, a riot formed. They went and grabbed this guy, Jason, got him, attacked his house, and got him out of his house because that's where they were meeting with the Apostle Paul, hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, what's remarkable certainly was Paul, the reception he had to preaching the gospel. But think about this. Paul got to leave at night. Paul and Silas and Timothy got away. The Thessalonians stayed. That was their home. That's where their families were. That's where their jobs were. What it meant was they were signing up for sure persecution. This would have ramifications and costs. It would cost them their safety and their security. I mean, Jason and others were taken before the authorities there and were accused of trying to overthrow the government. They were trying to get them thrown in prison. It would mean the loss of economic opportunity, people cutting you off, canceling you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not able to continue on in relationships with others. If you were Jewish, cut off from the Jewish community. What's remarkable is that the Thessalonians accepted the word in the midst of that hostile environment. In other words, their obedience to Christ was costly. It came with great cost and sacrifice and suffering. Now, Paul's words here gave them perspective on their suffering. The persecution they experienced 
was common to Christians. So he didn't want them to think, well, are, are we doing something wrong here? Like, you know, what, what's going on? Everyone's trying to attack us. Like, are we, are we doing this Christian thing the wrong way? Well, Paul wanted them to know, no, this is normal. This has always happened to, to Christians. They were not the first church to be persecuted and afflicted, and they would not be the last church. Paul goes on to say there in verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The Thessalonians, they were having the same experience that the Judean churches had in being persecuted by their own people. And here at the end of verse 14, Paul speaks specifically about his own countrymen, his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. And he speaks of their opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul was Jewish, and he didn't stop being Jewish when he put his faith in Jesus Christ. So it didn't mean, oh, well, I'm no longer Jewish, I'm a Christian. No, he was a Jewish believer in the Lord Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, receiving Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah is indeed receiving the very hope of Israel, the hope that Israel had been longing for. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. Now, it was Paul's practice that the first place he preached the gospel when visiting a city was the Jewish synagogue. When he went to Thessalonica three Saturdays, three Sabbaths in a row, he went and reasoned from the Old Testament Scriptures there in a Jewish synagogue pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who died on the cross and who rose from the dead as King of Kings. He pointed to King Jesus and the need to repent of your sin against God and put your faith in Jesus if indeed you would enter the kingdom of God. And there were some Jewish people there who received and accepted that word, welcomed it, and put their faith in Jesus. But it was also the common experience that when he preached in the synagogues, he faced great opposition from his own people. At times beaten, taken prisoner, attempts to put him to death. Yet even the Apostle Paul realized that wasn't unique to him. In verse 15, he recounts, This was the very treatment of the prophets and of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So you can go all the way back to Jesus, to the prophets. The the Old Testament prophets were killed by their very own people in Israel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, even John the Baptist who came as the forerunner, killed, martyred for proclaiming the truth about the coming Messiah. See, the Apostle Paul says that this is the way that it's always been. And the perspective that he wanted these Christians to have is that when they suffer, when they're persecuted for the gospel, they are like Christ. As they follow Jesus, they share in His sufferings. Persecution is normal Christianity. Obedience to Christ has always been costly. Brother and sister in the Lord, it's important that you understand that obedience to God is costly. Your following of Jesus may not be costing you this morning what it was costing the Thessalonians or what it cost Paul, though for some of our brothers and sisters today around the globe, it certainly is their freedom and security and safety are at stake. 
Uh, I've had the opportunity years ago to preach in an underground church, meaning a secret church in East Asia. It was an odd feeling to go into a place where I didn't really know where I was going, in a back apartment in a building somewhere, and to walk into an apartment full of about 30 believers tucked back away in a corner where they could sing, and we could sing pretty loudly without them being heard or discovered. It was an odd feeling going from something like this to something like that. It was a humbling feeling and reminds me of what's always been true of Christianity and churches facing persecution for following the Lord Jesus. That may not be your story today, but following Jesus is costing you something. Obeying Hebrews 10.25 this morning, not forsaking the assembling together as believers. That costs you. Choosing to be here costs you time. You could be doing something else this morning. You could be at home. You could be running errands. You could be enjoying a nice brunch right now. Uh, You could just be kind of having me time right now. But you came to church. That costs you time. Following Jesus costs you money. You understand that your money has been given to you by God and you joyfully obey God. And on the first day of the week, the way Christians always have you come and you give money. We pass the plates and you just gave money a little bit of go. We give cheerfully of our money to the spread of the gospel every Sunday. You know, if you weren't a Christian, you'd probably have more money in your bank account. Meaning you wouldn't be giving generously to the work of the Lord. Sharing your life with others, discipling others, practicing hospitality, meeting practical needs. That all costs time. It all costs money. Evangelizing your family or friends or neighbors or coworkers may cost you a relationship or social standing. Missions is costly. It is costly to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Sending missionaries and missionaries going, leaving what is uh, familiar for something that is foreign for the sake of the gospel. It's costly. It costs money to send missionaries onto the field. It is costly to follow Jesus. And a rival, I think, to costly obedience is convenient obedience, which is not obedience at all. It means obeying Jesus when it feels convenient, attending Sunday worship when it feels convenient, I've read just you know, church kind of uh, articles recently on church growth, and what they've said is that years ago, you were considered a regular attender if you came to church three times a month. You'd be a considered a regular attender. Well, they've now shifted what they consider a regular attender to be one time a month. Seriously, one time a month is now a regular attender. Now, I understand that gyms are full in January, and churches often are too. And we need to be careful that you don't fall into this pattern of, well, you know, it's convenient now because it's the start of a new year, but as life gets more busy, well, I'll see when I can fit church into my free time. That is not a Christian perspective. It's not a perspective of obedience. It's a a perspective of convenience. You see, convenient Christianity says, I'll attend when it's convenient. I'll give money when it feels comfortable to do so. I'll make time for Christian growth and service when it's fits into my schedule. I'm not that busy when other things in life aren't at the forefront. Brothers and sisters, that's not obedience at all. Obedience to God that doesn't cost anything isn't obedience. Christians, we are not people of convenience. We're people of conviction. We are not people of convenience. We're people by 
conviction in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul was thankful that they received the Word by the Holy Spirit in full conviction. We talked about the difference between a conviction and a belief. That a belief might be something that you hold strongly, but a conviction is a belief that strongly holds you. If you're convinced of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that He owns you, that you belong to Him, that He saved you, that your life exists for His glory, well, that's going to radically shape the way you think about time and money and all of your life and all of your relationships and what life looks like on Sunday morning and what it looks like on Monday morning at home or school or at work. You see, being gripped by conviction is saying, He owns me. My life, my time, my all, it belongs to Him. You see, we don't serve Jesus as Christians merely because it's worth it, but rather because He is worthy. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our money. He's worthy of all of our lives. It is a joy to obey Him. It is a joy to serve Him. You see, I thank God for the spiritual fruit that I see in this local church. I see this by God's grace as a church that is striving to please God, a church by God's grace where a foundation is built. I told many of you, uh, at the members' meeting, that uh, I picked First Thessalonians because I think it reminds me of a place where we are as a church. And First Thessalonians, he's just trying to encourage a faithful church, keep going, grow in faithfulness. I think that's where we're at. I will never forget the picture of 22 weeks being out on this backfield. Now, I don't want to repeat it again. I really don't. I don't want to repeat that again. But I'll never forget it. That wasn't convenient. That was a gathering of conviction. It wasn't convenient to sit out there and sweat in southern humidity and some of you chasing your toddlers around while trying to listen to a sermon there on the backfield. It wasn't convenient, but it was a picture to me of God's grace in this church, of conviction, of people who wanted to assemble, of people who wanted to hear the Word of God, evidence of God's work, the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in the life of this church. I look at this church and I see a church that's built upon convictions, a people of conviction. Let's keep going. Let's ask God for more. Let's ask God to strengthen us. Let's ask God to use us to strengthen one another. In Oakhurst Baptist Church, it's a wonderful question to ask yourself. How can you live more by conviction in the gospel this week? How can you live more by conviction in the gospel this week? Pray and ask God to strengthen you to walk by faith. Well, Paul also wanted them to know that those persecuting them displease God. We see that down in verse 15. God is pleased when the gospel is preached. He is displeased when the gospel is opposed. As the Thessalonians faced unjust treatment, they would not need to take personal vengeance out on those persecuting them. Paul wanted them to know that God saw and understood and would hold those who were persecuting them accountable. God would deal justly with those who opposed them. At the end of verse 16, we see the final outcome for those who oppose Jesus and the gospel. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. It's a hard verse. It's a hard truth. It tells us for those who persist in displeasing God, in opposing Jesus, and the gospel, they have filled up their sins. Meaning something like, their sins have piled up to the limit. Paul is speaking to a familiar concept in the Bible where the sins of a people fill up to their complete measure before God's judgment is poured out. 
The Old Testament often references the cup of God's wrath, where Israel, through rebellion against God and disobedience to His commands, slowly filled up the cup of God's wrath. It's the image of a cup filling up with sin to the brim shortly before God's judgment comes. Paul stating here, their sins, those who oppose God, have come to the full measure. God's judgment, His holy wrath is indeed coming. Now back at the end of chapter 1, he mentioned God's wrath to comfort the church. And he mentioned back in in chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus delivers Christians from the wrath that is to come. It's meant to comfort us. Here at the end of chapter 2, he's comforting them with God's wrath again, saying, hey, those who oppose Jesus and oppose you and are seeking harm to you, take comfort. God is in control. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. You don't need to go and take personal vengeance. Find comfort in God. He's telling him here, trusting in Jesus is the only way to be delivered from God's wrath, and those who oppose Jesus will face the wrath of God. Now, when Christ returns... Those who oppose God, those who oppose Jesus, God will judge them. They can be certain of this. That's what Paul wanted to know. You can be certain of this. In fact, this is so certain that even though it's an event that's in the future, when Jesus returns, Paul speaks of it here in the past tense, has come upon them at last. He's speaking of it as if it's already happened. I think what that is, it's the sense it's so certain you can know it's going to come to pass. He speaks of it as if it's already happened. God is right to judge those who oppose Jesus. Those who oppose Jesus will receive His justice by His holy wrath. Those last two words in verse 16, at last, it can also be translated forever or to the uttermost referring to God's wrath in hell. Hell is a real place. It's a place where God's judgment and wrath is totally consuming. It is a place of eternal, conscious torment. He's saying that this wrath indeed is secured for those who will not give up opposing Jesus. God is right to judge He is holy, along with His holy love, perfectly consistent with it is His holy wrath. You see, in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he elaborates more on this. So we get just a little bit here, and it's like, all right, what does that mean? Well, in chapter 1, verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians, he elaborates more. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's a warning to stop opposing Jesus if you are. As one person put it, never-ending hostility toward God will end in never-ending punishment. God's wrath and His judgment will last forever in hell. And you're either going to heaven or to hell when you die. As a Christian pastor, I say that because I love you. You you need to know that. You, You need to know the truth. You need to know what God's Word so clearly says. But it doesn't have to end in everlasting punishment. An interesting part of the Apostle Paul referring to the persecution of the churches in Judea is that he was formerly a leader of Jewish opposition to the gospel amongst the churches in Judea. You can go back and read in Acts chapter 7 when he oversaw the stoning and killing of 
Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You see, the very story of the Apostle Paul is a story of one who formerly persecuted the church and by God's grace stopped and put his faith in Jesus Christ. He went from being a murderer of Christians to a missionary of the gospel of Jesus Christ, from being the very one driving out Christians, displeasing God as he threw Christians into prison and had them killed. On that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. He repented of his sin, put his faith in Jesus Christ, and was saved. Turning away from displeasing God and devoting his life to pleasing God by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ among the nations. You see, the message that Paul embraced and proclaimed is that when Christ died on the cross, he took the blame for sin. He bore the wrath of God in the place of those who would turn and trust in Jesus. We sang about that in a beautiful hymn this morning, the power of the cross. That the power of the cross of Jesus Christ is that those who turn and trust in Jesus, he took God's judgment in our place. In our place, condemned he stood. The only claim we have before the throne of God above on that last day, when indeed we will stand before Him, is not our own merit. It's not all the good intentions and good things that we tried to do. We stand on the mercy of Jesus Christ. His body given for us. His blood shed for us. Our trust is fully in Him. Our hope is fully in Him. And we don't have to bear the wrath of God because we've trusted in Jesus who perfectly bore the wrath of God as He died on the cross. You see, the great hope we have as Christians as we consider God's wrath in Jesus is that Jesus will deliver us from that wrath if indeed we turn and trust in Him. And I plead with you today, if you're here and you haven't done that, and I mean I plead with you to do that today. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't let this moment pass you by without talking to someone afterwards. I'll be right down here. We'll have other pastors at the door. Talk to any of our members about what it would look like to become a Christian. Trust in Jesus today. Well, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is He worthy? Of course He is. He is the joy of Christians to follow Jesus, to obey His Word. And let's pray for God to renew that joy, to strengthen us in our obedience, that we would keep welcoming the Word of God in our lives, that we might more deeply obey and worship and serve our God and King together. We think about this now as we come to the Lord's table. We come now to be strengthened, to be reminded of God's kindness and love to us in Christ, as we remember the body and blood of our Lord Jesus given for us. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help and your grace. Lord, we ask that you would, as those who've welcomed your word, that we would be those who would continue to welcome the word. We pray you'd bring fruit from the preaching of your word this morning. We pray that you would strengthen our obedience to you, Lord. We pray you deepen our worship, that we would walk in holy reverence and fear of you. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring spiritual fruit in the lives of this church. And Lord, we pray for any who come this morning who don't know you, they would turn and place their trust in Jesus. Come and strengthen us now as we turn our attention to the body of the Lord Jesus and his blood shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.